Vision of Enchantment. Welcome to episode 30 of Coffee Talks with Mike. I'm stoked to do this episode with you guys and keep going a little bit further into this book, Everything Belongs by Richard Rohr. I'm really enjoying it. And I've talked to a few of you that uh, listened to the first episode and sounds like you all are enjoying it too. So I'm, I'm really excited about diving into this. I'm recording this over the weekend because we're about to get a snowpocalypse here in the Pittsburgh area, apparently. And uh, I have not had a good track record with the snow in 2022. So I'm like, hey, maybe I'll just get ahead of getting some stuff done. And hey, if we get as much snow as we're projected to get, I might actually get to build the igloo I've always dreamed of building. So I will keep you posted on my igloo adventures and how they go. But um, I'm cruising through this book right now. I, I can't put it down. It's really been enjoyable. And it's tough because when you read a book that's smaller like this, that is just so rich, it's a quick read. But then also, like if you read it too fast, you don't really internalize the information as much. So really, this, this is the dream for the podcast for me, you know, as much as some of you might like it, like, you know, it's not perfect. It's not a, you know, perfectly polished product in, in one sense. But for me, this is another way that I can really crystallize the information in my own head because it's not just me reading it or marking up a book. It's me really going out of my way to try and explain it. So with all that being said, um, this chapter, chapter two, uh, you know, I might go beyond chapter two just to give you a glimpse of kind of some bigger picture stuff he talks about. But chapter two is called Vision of Enchantment, and he quotes a book that I've currently got on my shelf that I'm really planning to read this year in 2022. Um, so this is from Theodore Dostoevsky, difficult name to say, um, and this is from the book The Brothers Karmazov. So let's get into it. This is how the chapter starts. He says, love people even in their sin, for that is the semblance of divine love and is the highest love on earth. Love all of God's creation, the whole and every grain of sand of it. Love every leaf, every ray of God's light. Love the animals, love the plants, love everything. If you love everything, you will perceive the divine mystery in all things. Once you perceive it, you'll begin to comprehend it better every day. And you'll come at last to love the whole world with an all-embracing love. That's from Dostoevsky. That's got me sold on the fact I need to read this book for a hundred other reasons I've heard of. But that is really powerful. And I thought about just doing a whole episode unpacking that. But I, I want everything and nothing at the same time. So if someone wants to unpack that with me, um, let, let's get coffee and do that. But building off of that, that is the kind of the vision of this entire book, Everything Belongs. Because when we figure out how everything in the world around us belongs, we can figure out how they play into God's will, God's creation, God's love. And when we choose to love all of these things and figure out how they belong, it enables us, and I quote, to to perceive and comprehend the divine mystery in all things better every day. And then you will come at last to love the whole world with an all embracing love or a godly love, I'd say. So building off of chapter one, 
this is where uh, Roar goes because this chapter, Vision of Enchantment, is about learning how to become enchanted or not really. It, actually, he, he talks about how it's not about learning. It's about accepting, right? So it's kind of like a both and thing. But learning that we are enchanted by God. And that's language that we might not use typically. We might associate that with, you know, some lovey-dovey, feely, you know, I don't know, even Wicca type of thing, like an enchantment. But in the most strictly literal sense of the word, this enchantment is important. And so the first, I'm just going to read this first few lines of the chapter right after that quote. He says, let me begin with hope. I hope our understanding of prayer is coming to a greater simplicity. If prayer isn't simple by the time you finish reading this, I will have failed. The purpose of this exploration is not to get anywhere. We Western people are goal-oriented. We're consumers. We can't imagine doing anything that wouldn't get us something. But with full deliberation, we need to understand that this is not an effort to get anywhere. My starting point is that we're already there. We cannot attain the presence of God. We're totally in the presence of God already. What's absent is our awareness. God is maintaining us in existence with every breath we take. As we take another, it means that God is choosing us now and now and now and now. We have nothing to attain or even learn we do, however, need to unlearn some things. So what's he saying here is that like so much of even the, the, the project of this podcast that I'm doing, right, is so that we can learn things together, that we can uncover certain truths together. And sometimes we, when we apply that to our spirituality, to our faith, to our relationship with God, we turn it into such a task that we over-consume, that we over-try to materialize what we're doing over quantify, over uh, categorize or strategize. And what Roar is saying is, no, we're already there. The purpose of prayer is not to have the most beautiful words put together like it's a poem that you are delivering, but rather to become aware of God's presence already here. Now, I've got a lot of nerdy thoughts that aren't necessarily my own, but that have been pointed out to me about like the, the theology behind omnipresence, the idea that God is present everywhere at all times, always. That means God is present a thousand years ago simultaneously as he's present now, which is going to break your brain. So don't get caught up on that at this moment. But when we talk about God being present everywhere, Sometimes our prayers are like, God, come be with us in this place. Language matters. God's already with us in this place. Do we acknowledge that God is there with us, here with us? You know, maybe you're listening to this podcast, you know, in a, in a church or in your car or in your kitchen. Do you believe that God is in that space with you? When you're doing dishes, when you're getting your kids ready for school, when you're making another deal at your job, when you're cleaning, when you're cooking, when you're sleeping, God is with you. And so this is about building awareness. It's not about learning how to make God want to hang out with you more. It's about learning how to become aware of God's presence. And we would say it's not really about learning a bunch of stuff. 
It's about unlearning a bunch of stuff. And so, so he says, he goes on, he says, to allow that unlearning, we have to accept what is often difficult, uh, particularly for people that live in a culture that strives to be successful. And that means we have to accept that we share a mass cultural trance. It's hypnotic. We're sleepwalkers. And that's not unique to us now. All religious teachers have said this. We human beings don't naturally see. We have to be taught how to see. That's why there's so much about seeing and becoming awake when Jesus is talking, but not just Jesus, the Buddha too, and, and other religions too. And so Rohr says, religion is learning how to see. We have to learn to see what's there. We have to learn to see that God's at work in this very moment that I'm recording this at 4.34 in the afternoon and in the moment that you're listening to this. That's bizarre. That, like, that's the mind-breaking piece of God's omnipresence, that he is present now and infinitely present every time this is listened to. Every time you listen to it, every time I think of it, like that, that God is present with us. We have to learn how to see. We have to learn how to become aware because there's a lot of things that are shifting the way that we see. And so when he goes on, Roar talks a little bit about radical grace. And he says, like, this is a really big struggle for us to grasp. And he says, you know, the world in which I strive for spiritual success is not a cosmic game of crime and punishment. He says, I fear a large percentage of religion teaches that even if it's indirectly. It's really true of all religions that he sees in all of the world. We're afraid of gratuity. We want God for the sake of social order, and we want religion for the sake of social controls. And he says that like, he wants to take a different approach to prayer. He says, prayer is not primarily saying words or thinking thoughts. It's rather a stance. It's a way of living in the presence, capital P, presence of God. It's of choosing to be in presence. That's why you can pray without saying any words. He says it's a way of living in awareness of the presence, enjoying the presence. The full contemplative is not just aware of the presence of God, but trusts, allows, and delights in it. All spiritual disciplines have one purpose, to get rid of illusions so that we can live in the presence. Disciplines exist so that we can see what is. We can see who we are and see what's happening. And so when we talk about spiritual disciplines, disciplines are a word that's not as popular now. Sometimes people say practices and, uh, you know, they are practices and they become disciplines by making them habitual and choosing to do them. But all of these spiritual practices, they, like there are very common ones that are known, and I am sure there are more that are being developed over time, but things like reading scripture, things like sitting in prayer, or sitting in silence, or choosing solitude, or choosing to meditate, choosing to go and be hospitable. There, there, there's a number of books I definitely uh, uh, commend to all of you or appeal to all of you to read. There's um, Celebration of the Disciplines, um, uh, I think there's a version of it written by Dallas Willard, and there's also one by Richard Foster, like Spirit of the Disciplines, Celebration of the Disciplines, but both are great books by those two authors, just as an intro, uh, an on-ramp. But fundamentally, what is the purpose of solitude and silence? 
It's to do away with all the distractions so that we can become aware of God's presence. What's the purpose of reading scripture? To, to, sometimes we reduce it to, so I can learn what I'm supposed to do. But actually, it's, it's about choosing to be in the presence of God, to let all the other worries of the day, all the worries of the moment fade away so that you choose to learn about where God is now. Here's how God showed up for Israel in Egypt. And you're reading that story, you're reflecting on that story. In that very moment, you are in the presence of God. You're allowing those things that are always pressing on your mind to fade away just for a moment by choosing, by disciplining yourself to be in God's presence. He says, God can most easily be lost by being thought found. Say that in a less, you know, um, or an easier way. You know, we often lose God most by thinking we found him already. And that is the great mistake of our faith, right? Is that we think that like, oh, we've been doing this long enough. Like we know the motions, like we might get some stuff wrong, but we've got it figured out. It's like, no, 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 no. Like, God is constantly trying to propel us forward, to help us grow, to help us learn, to see better. This is why, like anyone that knows me well, and I'm sure I've referenced it a lot, I have to really temper my own passion for it. But like, I love C.S. Lewis and I love his fiction. I love the Chronicles of Narnia because these are the kinds of themes that are beautifully played out in this fictional world right? We have to learn how to see, but it never stops. You might have an amazing day, an amazing week where you just did all the right things. And then the next day you make a mistake you haven't made in 10 years. And you're like, am I stupid? I thought I already did this. I thought I already learned this lesson, but we're learning for the rest of our lives. Thomas Merton, one of my favorite authors, um, writes, you know, no one wants to be beginners. All of us hate it but we have to accept the fact that we will be beginners for the rest of our lives. That's reality, particularly in the realm of our spiritual lives. Every time you talk to someone that you think is really amazing at praying, I bet you they don't think they are. Every time you talk to someone that thinks they're an amazing preacher or that you think is, they probably don't think that about themselves. And I would caution like this is for myself, someone that has to preach, but like anyone, like when you begin to believe that about yourself, it's a dangerous line to walk. It's not in a way to like, uh, uh, you're not supposed to be, have this false humility. That's a different form of arrogance, false humility. Um, but, but the people that really are accepting how vast the journey is realize like you might have made more progress than the person next to you, but there's so much more to go. This is lifelong. And it's the same thing about us knowing God. You, you can never know enough. You could read the Bible three times a year for the rest of your life, and you'll not know enough. That's evidenced by the Pharisees, right? People that knew scripture better than anyone else in and out, and they missed God in the flesh in front of them healing people. How do you miss it? And we read it, we go, look at those dumb Pharisees, but we're the Pharisees. That's us except we don't even know the Bible as well as they did. We have to continue on with the journey that we, we don't arrive because God's already with us. That's where Roar started the chapter. It's not about getting somewhere. We're already there. It's about constantly being aware of that presence with us. 
That's why community is so integral to the life of faith. It's, it, it's the DNA, the church. It's a body of many members. You're not a spleen on a sidewalk. You are one of 7 billion humans on earth. And humanity, we're image bearers. We're supposed to make up the body of Christ by reflecting God's image together in the church. Capital C. It's not about your denomination. It's not about your country. It's about Jesus. And so this journey doesn't stop. He said, so he goes on. Sorry, that was my little rabbit hole. You can hear it in my voice. I was getting a little too pepped up about it. Um, oh, cool. Look, he's talking about the Pharisees. So he goes on. He says, listen, the Pharisees argued that Jesus couldn't be from God. So the healing couldn't have really happened. This is a, he's talking about the story of the blind man, right? And he says, who sinned, this man or his parents? And they're trying to figure it out because their theology said that if someone has a physical ailment, it's a punishment for sin. Now, we read that and go, that's horrible. Read the rest of the Bible and see if that theology shows up somewhere. The Pharisees weren't idiots. They were trying to make sense of reality. They were trying to see well. And so Rohr says the Pharisees argue that the this man, Jesus, couldn't be from God, right? Because of their monotheistic understanding, which we affirm. But the, the idea of Trinity is completely paradoxical, completely nonsensical. So the idea that Jesus and God the Father are the same made no sense to them. So as a result, Jesus claiming to be God means he couldn't be God. So because he's not from God, this is Roar again, the healing can't have really happened even though clearly the healing happened. This blind person could see. It's right in front of them. Their argument is logical and theological. A sinner can't work miracles, and he hasn't observed the Sabbath. Therefore, Jesus is a sinner. And then with guilt by association, they accuse this blind person's parents of being sinners. And in the final paragraph, they accuse the man himself of being a sinner. They see sin everywhere. Jesus, parent, and the blind man's blind man, sin all over the place. You, you're a sinner through and through. Who are you to tell us? And the man is shrewd enough not to get into a theological debate. He sticks to the story. All I know is that I was blind and now I see. And Jesus, this is still we're, talk, we're talking. He says, Jesus ends this wonderful illumination story with a final devastating line. He says, it is for judgment that I have come into the world. So those without sight may see, and those with sight be turned blind. Hearing this, the Pharisees said, we are not blind, surely. He, this is Roar in parentheses. We're Orthodox. We're good Christians. We're clergy. Jesus replied, blind? Question mark. If you were, you would not be guilty. But since you say we see, your guilt remains. Well, what's he saying? What's Roar getting at by, by quoting this story? He's saying, listen, the people that think they've got it all figured out, that don't live in that, that delicate humility of admitting that you are imperfect and that you need to renew your vision every day, those are the people that become blind. Those are the people, and to, to quote him again, to unpack that idea, God most easily is lost by those who think they've found him fully. The people that think there's no more seeing to be done, the people that think that they've already got there, they're missing it. 
we are those people sometimes. We think that we have a grasp on who God is and what God's doing and where God shows up and where God doesn't show up, which music and which TV and which parts of the neighborhood and which cities and which political parties, we know where God shows up. No, no, no. God is present everywhere. You either believe in that or you don't. But the moment you don't, you're into a couple problems theologically. And the moment you do, you're into a couple problems theologically. So choose the problems you want to have. But when we go with the Christian tradition and say God is present everywhere, then that means you need to affirm that God is present with those people you really don't like. That's really hard to affirm. And, and frankly, someone else thinks you are the person God shouldn't show up with too. That's what makes this so difficult. And that's, that's part of the journey is learning how to see it so that we can move forward, that we can embrace God's presence here and now. This is Roar. He says, one of Jesus's favorite visual aids is a child. Every time the disciples get into their head games, he puts a child in front of them. The important part of that is, is learning how to be vulnerable, to say to your own soul, I don't know anything. Roar says that. He says, try to say that. Say, say it right now. I don't know anything. We used to call it tabula rasa in Latin. No idea if I said that right. He said, maybe you could think of yourself as an, as an erased blackboard ready to be written on. By and large, what blocks spiritual teaching is the assumption that we already know or that we don't need to know. But we have to pray for the grace of a beginner's mind. We have to say with the blind man, I want to see. That's so crucial because spirituality is about seeing. This is, this is Roar. It's not about earning or achieving. It's about relationship rather than results or requirements. Because once you see, the rest of it follows. It's kind of like the faith and works thing. It's not about works, but once you have faith, the works follow. The life is lived within us. And we learn how to say yes to that life. I titled this book, Everything Belongs, because at the level at which we're talking, we can see how everything fits. On that level, we can learn to trust the flow and trust the life, the life so large and deep and spacious that it even includes its opposite, death. And that's the great paradox. This faith of ours includes death. It doesn't shy away from it, but rather says this is a part of the process. But in death, we rise up. Full cycles of life include it. It's, it's built in from the beginning. And we have to voluntarily choose that death, not just in a physical sense, in our spiritual sense. We die to ourselves. We die to the world. We rise with Christ. We do this in our baptisms. We do this in our vows, in our, in our faith, the way that we live every day. And so when we talk about being asleep and religion being about learning how to, to wake up, to see, or our faith, some people struggle with the religion word. I get that. Um, it just depends on how you define the word, right? but it's about learning how to see, how to shake off the hypnotic trance of reality, of culture, of our egos, so that we can see God's presence with us here and now. So he goes on a little bit. He says, religion has not tended to create seekers or searchers. 
Religion has not tended to create honest, humble people who trust that God is always beyond them. We aren't focused on the great mystery. Religion has instead tended to create people who think they've got God in their pockets, people with quick, easy, glib answers. And that's why so much of the West is understandably abandoning religion. This is back in 89 that he wrote this. He says, people know the great mystery can't be that simple and facile. If the great mystery is indeed the great mystery, capital G, capital M, the ultimate essence of it, it will lead us into paradox, into darkness, into journeys that never cease. That's what this book is about. And that fundamentally is what prayer is about. Because in prayer, we're choosing to become aware of God's presence, which is beautiful and mysterious and paradoxical and confusing, frankly, but it transforms us. Learning to be with God in prayer is learning to change how we see everything in reality. That's what enables us to see our enemies as image bearers of the divine. That's what enables us to love the way Jesus loved us. That's what enabled someone like Jesus to wash Judas's feet, knowing Judas is going to be the one that betrays him. To offer dinner to Judas in the Last Supper, knowing he's going to leave dinner and a few hours later leave the Roman guards to arrest Jesus and get him killed. It's when we choose to be with God that we become more like God, that we learn how to see like God, and we complicate it because we think it's about saying the right things, thinking the right things, doing the right things. Sometimes we have to just acknowledge we're already here. God's in this moment right now, and we need to choose to be in God's presence right now, which means we need to let go of the things that are distracting us in this moment. Turn off the music just for a moment. Let go of the tasks just for a moment. Just sit in prayer and become aware of the mysterious presence of God. It changes everything. Everything. Like, it's not like a, a throwaway phrase. It's not just like, oh, yeah, God will change your life. It's going to get so good. Like, no, like, when we really choose to be in God's presence, everything around us changes. And it's really inconvenient sometimes. But Jesus promises that this is what life was always supposed to be. You've been given life, but I'm here to give you life in the full. It's right here. Take it. Yeah, life gets more complicated that way, but it's more fulfilled. It's what it was always meant to be. Even in the Garden of Eden, all of the good things at Adam and Eve's disposal, but there were some things they weren't supposed to do. Apparently, a fulfilled life doesn't mean getting anything you want, anytime you want, all the time. Apparently, a fulfilled life means there are complicated decisions, difficult decisions involved, and yet, it's better. Now, he talks about how you know parables are about turning the world upside down, turning the, our worldviews upside down. And he talks about the parable of the seed and the sower, four different types of soil that the sower plants seed on. This is Mark 4. And Roar says, the parable says the seed fell on several different types of soil. Some just aren't ready for the word. Capital W, meaning Jesus. That's John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Later on in that chapter, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
It's very interesting when we say God's word, often people are talking about the Bible, but God's word is quite literally Jesus. So the Bible is involved in that, and yet it's not the same thing. He says, listen, he's kind of taking this parable, though, right? The seed is being planted, and it's not just the the words of the gospel. It's like some people, some soils just aren't ready for Jesus, for the word, capital W. They're not there yet, and it's not their fault. When the student is ready, the teacher will arrive. That's a very old mantra, but it very much makes sense. Sometimes the thing that you've heard a hundred times doesn't make sense, but the hundred and first, it does. When the, te- when the student is ready, the teacher will arrive. Most spiritual work is readying the student. Again, go back to Jesus's analogy, Paul's analogy. Yeah, there are people that are planters, people that are waterers, but God gives the growth. But what else goes into planting a seed and watering a seed? It's tilling the soil. It's making sure there's enough sunlight. It's making sure that you've got the right weather conditions. It's readying the student writing ourselves. Both soil and soul, this is roar, they have to be a bit unsettled and loosened. Normally, we let God in the way um, we let everything else in. We meet God at our present level of relational maturity, preoccupied, closed, stuck, or ready. Those are our four options. Apply those four options to the parable of the seed and the sower. Preoccupied, closed, stuck, and ready. Those are the four different routes you can go. As long as we're too comfortable, this is Roar, too opinionated, too sure we've got the whole truth, we are just doomed to be rocks and thorns. Anybody throwing us seeds is wasting their time. It's tough. It's heavy because it means we never really get to rest in this in the way that we'd like to believe we do. We'd like to think we got it all figured out. We got enough figured out now that we're good to go. But in reality, this learning to see, this learning to be aware of God's presence, it's a daily practice, discipline. It's an action we choose to partake in. It's about unlearning so much of what we've been in internalizing all our lives. This is Rory goes down a little bit further. He says, we desperately need some disciplines to help us know how to see. But more than that, what's worth seeing, meaning we need to learn what we don't need to see. It's about cleaning our lenses. One of my favorite parts of this chapter, I thought I'd get past chapter two, but I'm sure everyone listening knew I wouldn't. Oh man, there's still so much more to go. Not gonna, I'm not going to get to the end of chapter two. Roar goes a little further. He says, when Jesus teaches the law, it's for the sake of its purpose being achieved. But the law is never an end in itself. This isn't a religion of requirements. He makes that clear when he defends the disciples who pick grains on the Sabbath. He says, a beginner's mind requires that we're willing to respond and change because we're aware of our own mixtures of good and evil. Jesus uses a number of mixture illustrations to make this tension clear. It's because the world is a mixture of different things, and unless you learn how to see, you don't learn how to separate. You get lost in the weeds, and you can't see the wheat. 
It's the imagery used in Matthew 13. Part of our lives is learning how to make sense of these mixtures we encounter all the time. That's what's difficult. We want the world to be simple. We want it to be black and white. We want things to be easily digestible, but they're not. And even the things that we thought we've known for so long sometimes have new nuances that we didn't notice before. And so Roar would say that the kingdom of God that Jesus describes is an alternative to our sleepwalking. It's an alternative to the way that we naturally would go without learning to change. And so he, he really just continues to build on these ideas. And I mean, there's so much richness in, in this book and in this chapter alone um, that, that I really hope you all will pick up. Um, I, I don't know where you can, I got this at a used book sale on a whim for like three bucks. Um, it's been so good. He says, listen, the great language of religion is that it teaches us willingly, trustingly to enter into the dark periods of our lives. The dark periods are good teachers. Religious energy is in the dark questions, seldom in the answers. Answers are the way out, but answers are not what we're here for. When we just look for answers, we're looking to change the pattern. When we look at the questions, we look for the opening to transformation. Now, I, I have read enough of Roar to know he's not saying, hey, you should never look for answers. You should never seek truth or seek you know, answers, but rather that sometimes we use and weaponize answers as an excuse to not do the hard work of asking questions and wrestling with them. Meaning sometimes we just settle for easy answers because they either justify what we're already doing or it means we get to tap out early. But when you really sit with the difficult questions of life, the darkness that we encounter, the struggles that we encounter, and we try to question what's going on here. Why would God let this happen? Is there something more at work? Can God be good and this terrible thing still happen? Wrestling and sitting in the unknown is part of what transforms us. He goes on and he talks a little bit about um, the way that we are approaching transformation. And he uses a number of different images to get at that, but he says transformation, it's a, it's a kind of journey. And every good journey starts with knowing where we are and being willing to go someplace else. Using an example, he says, when we first fall in love, we're temporarily taken out of ourselves. It doesn't last. It's infatuation. And some people would say that means false fire. But really, it, it does give you a new perspective on reality. The world looks entirely different when we first fall in love. Rites of passage in, in cultures are precisely that. Conversion is the same, as is all growth in stages of life. They move us from here to there. When you talk this way, people shrink from the experience. People might say, you know, I'm a Catholic or a Protestant or a Muslim or a Jew. I don't want to learn another way to look at things. They act as if they've figured God out completely. It's really a need for control at all costs. Unfortunately, the cost is high. Um, what he's getting at here and what he's describing is that 
this isn't a, a one size fits all. This isn't saying anything goes, but rather that all truth is God's truth. And so learning to, to see means stepping out of your own comfort zone, stepping out of your tribe, stepping out of the way that you think everything's supposed to function because everything needs to fit neatly in order. But that's not how God works. Certainly in one sense, we could say God is neat and in order. That's what Presbyterians would say, decently and in order. But no, we know that there are mysteries that we cannot answer. We know there are things that are not evidently clear. We know that there are doctrines in our theology about free will or predestination that, 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 yeah, we might think that one thing makes sense, but there are other options in those categories that also make sense. And scripture seems to affirm multiple angles to those questions. So no, your one denomination doesn't have it all figured out. No, Catholicism or Orthodoxy or Protestantism or Judaism or Islam, they don't have it all figured out. And yeah, it'd be exhausting. It'd be the rest of your life to try and learn how each and every denomination or approach to this perceives it. You'd be a beginner for the rest of your life. And yet, learning how to see regularly requires us to step into that uncomfortability. I'll end with this last piece here. Um, He says, look, prayer reconnects us with inherent value. Everything becomes priceless in our reality if it's sacred. And everything is sacred if the world is a temple. God created the world and he called it good. And when he finished all of creation, he called it very good. And if that's the case, then we have to stop pretending that physical things are bad. They're bad if we allow them to become an end in themselves. But if we allow them to be things that point us toward God, not to be worshipped as God themselves, but rather things that point us toward God, then they are sacred too. He says, listen, How you see anything is how you'll see everything. Going back to that first chapter language with center and circumference, he says, Jesus pushes everything back to the edge. Can you even see the image of Christ in the least of the brothers and sisters you have? He uses that as his only description of the final judgment. Nothing about commandments, nothing about church attendance, nothing about papal infallibility, Simply a matter of our ability to see. Do we see Christ in the least of these? Can we see Christ in the people, the nobodies who can't play our games of success? The people that smell, the people that are nuisances, people on welfare, they're a drain on our tax money. If we can see Christ in those people who we might even think don't deserve it, if we can see that, then we're really seeing. Jesus pushes us to love at every possible turn. And that's what learning to see and notice the presence of God is all about. Because if the world is a temple, then our enemies become sacred too. And the ability to respect the outsider is probably the litmus test of true seeing. It doesn't even stop with human beings and enemies. And at the least of these, 
It moves on to frogs and trees and weeds. Everything can become enchanting. One God, one world, one truth, one suffering, and one love. All we can do is participate. Now, again, I think if you're being uncharitable to what Roar is getting at, and go, man, that sounds like pantheism. It's not what he's saying. He's saying that if we affirm in our creation theology that God created everything good, yes, sin enters the world, but it doesn't inherently make the world bad. Sin is bad. Sin is us mistaking the things of the world for God himself. Sin is mistaking ourselves as gods in ourselves. But stepping into our God-created purpose, stepping into our purpose as image bearers of the divine is recognizing God is present with us here and now, recognizing that the world is a temple in that God is present in the world. Why do people go to the temple? Because that's where they believed God was. God is with us now. The world is God's temple. God is present. We need to learn to see and everything at our disposal has the opportunity to help us see better. This goes back to that book I did on a previous episode from James K.A. Smith. Nothing is neutral. Everything has the potential to push us closer to God or to pull us further from God. It depends on the way that we perceive it. So let us learn how to see. Where can you notice God's presence with you today? That's what I'll leave you with this week. Um, I'll probably at least do one more episode on this book coming up because I'm telling you, I've just been digging it. If you can't tell by the timbre in my voice, but um, I'm also starting to lose my voice. So I might have to take a little break. But with all that being said, if you're getting snow or sleet or rain this weekend, be safe and um, go in peace. <laughs>